Okay. Hello, everybody. I think Kevin pressed the button at exactly the right moment. Uh, what's time. most important is we got five likes. Five likes before we've done anything. If you haven't hit the like button, go ahead and hit it and yeah. for Kevin's sake. Yeah, we've, we're deciding the future of his job based on the number of likes gotta this get video to, gotta gets. Gotta get to 15 likes. There's a, uh, already a, quite a conversation about the different kinds of teas that people are drinking while they watch. That's cool. You know, I'm a coffee guy myself, but I understand it's late in the evening. Um, welcome, everybody. You know, man, so many things we were talking about before we went live. We were considering entering the rap game was one of them. But you were also, we were having some technical issues with the camera, and Isaac had a pretty strong theory about why that was happening. Oh, yeah, election interference. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is, for sure. People are trying to block Isaac Serrano any way they can. They're trying to stop my, my run. Yeah, it's uh, Isaac has a late... Oh, man! Someone gave a live thumbs down. I watched it happen. Because they're mad that people are trying to stop my run for um, office. That's true. It could be resistance to the idea of us entering the rap game, too. That's understandable. Kevin, can we get... Before we get into the serious stuff tonight, can we get your thoughts on... The prospect of Isaac and I entering the rap game instead of the pastor game. It's tremendously problematic. Mm. I'm oh, a, uh, no, I down can't. thumb went away. Yeah. How did that happen? Somebody probably hit it on accident. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Is that you, Ruth? Ruth didn't hit the down thumb People on accident. People don't know this, man, but I was in the rap game before. That's actually true. I was. <laughs> I was a rapper. Yeah. It, <laughs> you, you said it the New Zealand way. I was a rapper. Rappers, rappers have feelings. Yeah, the, uh, it's not it's not every day that we jump the shark two minutes in, but that's no, what's it happening tonight. Is every it probably <laughs> it's you know any day where we don't start with the garlic fish. That's the problem. Oh, Jacob said it was Jacob. Man, that's messed up. You know what though? Oh man, anything to get his name brought up on the broadcast. That was what it's about. But you know what? You, d you made it right, Jacob. So we forgive you. We forgive you. We're at 10 likes. Kevin's pretty secure almost. At Kevin's five likes away from keeping his job. <laughs> um, so, hey, we're, we're on episode four of a series on false doctrines. And we're sort of moving into like a sub-series within that series where we're going to be talking about um, things that there's not a great name for. But the most common term within... Christianity is calling these Christian cults. Um, and maybe we could start by talking about the difference between what we mean by cult when we talk about, you know, like Jim Jones and these kind of, you know, Waco, Texas, and these sort of like modern short-lived cult phenomenons versus things like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and stuff we're going to be talking about this week. Do you want to give a quick kind of encapsulation? Yeah, typically the way they're separated is you have like a cult as defined sociologically and then theologically. And most of the time Christians use that term theologically, but the broader world uses it more sociologically. And a cult is anything really where there's like a charismatic leader with a with some type of teaching that's unique or different and draws a bunch of people. Oftentimes there's like an authoritarian figure in it. So like in that sense, um, David Koresh and the Branch Davidian. Mm. Um, you might be too young for that. I know the name, but only because I'm a pastor. Now, Kevin... <laughs> Totally remembers that. You remember him, Kevin? He would probably accuse me of being a Branch Davidian. What do you think? No. no. <laughs> Isaac won't even joke about that. Uh, so that, you know, you have this charismatic leader. People are drawn to him. There's a unique teacher. So it's like a... That, that, but then Christians typically internally use the term cult for anything, any belief system that looks like it's Christian, but ultimately deviates from central Christian claims to such a degree that they're outside what we would call the pale of orthodoxy. Yeah. And so, and so these are because the ones we're going to talk about for the next three weeks, um, which we can just list them right now. Tonight, we're going to talk about Mormonism. Next week, we're going to talk about Jehovah's Witness. And the following week, we're going to talk about a cluster of beliefs typically called the mind sciences or Christian science is mm -hmm. the most common one in that, in that mix. But they're all rooted in Christianity. They all have kind of like a Christian theological core, yeah. Um, but they diverge so much that they are to the point of being completely different religions, which we'll see tonight. Um, but it's a little bit complicated. Like you, you, I personally wouldn't want to put them in like a series on world religions or something because many of them purport to be Christians, 
Yeah, Mormons, and in example. a sense, if you were teaching world religions, you would put all the branches and sects of Christianity, including Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, in the broader yeah. stream of Christianity. But internally, Christians would say, you can use the term Jesus, but you define Jesus in such a way that it's we're no longer talking about the same person. Right. So, for example, there's more than one Sam in Gilroy. And when I say the word Sam, I mean you and X, Y, Z. And somebody goes, oh, I know Sam. He's this short dude. He's got long hair. You're like, no, no. That's not my Sam. That's not <laughs> Sam. Um, so we have the same terminology and same language, but we're defining those in a radically different yeah. way. And it's interesting because there's, you know, there are many, many sects within Christianity and different denominations, et cetera. And Mormons or Latter-day Saints, as they prefer to be called, would define themselves as one of those sects of Christianity. Um, but traditional Christianity has always defined things that move beyond a certain level of kind of acceptable difference as yeah. you are now no longer a different branch of my religion. You are something entirely different. And it's really important because um, so much, like Isaac said, of the terminology is the same. So a Mormon can absolutely affirm, oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus is the son of God. Mm -hmm. I believe in God. I believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth. And they could list thing after thing that's going to sound exactly like Christianity. Yeah. But every single one of those terms means something different, as we'll see tonight. Um, so yeah, we're starting with Mormons or Latter-day Saints. We'll use the terms interchangeably because they are totally interchangeable. Um, it's a hugely successful cult, the biggest one in the world, I believe. Um, millions of adherents um, known for missionary zeal. So you've probably seen them at some point in your neighborhood. Um, I, I'm getting mixed up. Mormon missionaries ride bikes, correct? Multiple, well, lots of people ride bikes, but they're, they're, they're <laughs> I'm they already are, off to a bad they start. Are known for, yes, they are known for it. Yes. But they're usually well-dressed young people, super polite. That's another thing, frankly, that Mormons are known for is being yeah, really polite culture, and nice. So for instance, it's not just Sam just saying stereotypes. Like, so when the creators of South Park have a musical that is like crazy over the top that you probably should even Google. Yeah. But in it, you could see just from watching a trailer of it, the stereotypes come to the sur to the surf. Super friendly, family oriented, yeah. like black slacks and a white button up t-shirt type of thing. So there's stereotypes that are obviously not always true or completely true. Yeah, but, and ge but generally true. positive, which is interesting. Um, yes. And I've had many friends who are Mormons throughout my life. Um, and most of those positive stereotypes turn out to be true. They're friendly, family values for the most part, um, and positive. And so what we're going to do is what we've been doing every time, which is give you kind of an understanding of Mormon theology from Mormons directly. So rather than us kind of explaining it, we're going to take clips from their own videos. One of the best things for this week for my kind of workload last week is that the Mormon church does an incredible job with their videos. Yes. So they have like tons and tons of videos explaining all their doctrines. So I'm just going to be showing little pieces of them. Um, but if you are ever curious about diving into Mormon theology, go to YouTube and the Latter-day Saints official YouTube channel, which is where 90% of the video clips we're going to see come yeah. from. If there's a doctrine you're curious about, they've probably got a five-minute video explaining it. So recommend that. Yeah, and again, that. kind of to preface, if you missed the, the last two weeks, is we show you the sources because we want you to be exposed to what they're actually saying. It's very easy to mischaracterize people or, or almost say what they think for them in a different way than they would actually articulate. So it's best actually to let the person who holds the belief articulate it. Don't straw man it. Listen to what they have to say and then evaluate it. So that's what yeah. we do. And that's going to make you much better prepared to talk to your Mormon friends. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to walk through and we'll do some version of this for the next three weeks. Um, some kind of core theological categories where there are massive divergences between Christianity and Mormonism. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about um, revelation and authority, meaning kind of Bible prophecy type stuff, um, what they believe about God or what we would call theology proper. Um, if you've been around Theology Thursday for a long time, we did a whole series on that. Um, and then soteriology, which is the, the nerdy term for theology surrounding salvation and how we're saved. So starting with revelation, um, there is, well, let's just start with the video. Kevin, you want to bring up the screen? This is the longest clip we're going to show. Um, it's about the Book of Mormon, but it's really helpful because it's going to explain some details about the Book of Mormon, but it's also going to give a bunch of context for 
parts of Mormonism that are very unique. What about the people that lived beyond the geographical setting of the Bible, outside the Mediterranean area? What kind of interaction did God have with them? Well, in the Bible, from the book of John, Jesus revealed to his disciples in Jerusalem, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Some of these other sheep to which Jesus refers are the inhabitants of the ancient Americas who lived at that time. The Book of Mormon is a compilation of the sacred writings of many generations of the people that lived there and received instruction and teachings from God. They had prophets who, just like the Bible, recorded spiritual and historical events over thousands of years. And similarly to the Bible, these stories and events were written down, collected, and shared from generation to generation. They too were eventually compiled into a book. It is called The Book of Mormon, Another Testament of Jesus Christ. And like the Bible, the Book of Mormon is a collection of writings both spiritual and historical, written by God's prophets. In the Book of Mormon, there are also miraculous stories of faith, sacrifice, trial, and love. The crowning event in the Book of Mormon is the account of Jesus Christ ministering to the other sheep as he said he would. Shortly after his death, the Savior appeared to the inhabitants of the ancient Americas as the resurrected Lord with the body of flesh and bones. As he did in his earthly ministry in Jerusalem, Jesus taught the inhabitants his gospel, and they recorded it. They handed it down to future generations through prophets, leaders, and other inspired individuals. So how did the Book of Mormon get its name? Who is Mormon? And what does he have to do with this book of scripture? In the 4th century AD, again in the Americas, there lived a prophet and historian named Mormon. He was charged by God to abridge all of the scriptural records that had been kept and passed down from past prophets in that part of the world. Mormon engraved the abridgment on gold plates in a language his people called Reformed Egyptian. As Mormon was the prophet whom God called to compile the centuries of records, the book carries his name, the Book of Mormon. At the end of his life, he passed these engraved plates to his son Moroni, also a prophet of God who was last to add to the book. Before he died, Moroni buried the plates in a stone box on a hillside in what is now upstate New York. We're almost there. 1,400 years later, in 1823, this same prophet Moroni, now a resurrected being, appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith. He told Joseph about the gold plates, showed him where to find them, and commanded him to translate the record into English, which Joseph did under the power and inspiration of God. We can probably stop there. Sure. So, okay. Many of you, if you're not familiar with the Book of Mormon at all, that's um, a really good introduction to explaining what it is. So um, the biggest difference we see right off the bat is what does the Bible say about the American continent? Yeah, and and they set it up with the other sheep passage. Right. And see, this is the, the thing where, we've mentioned this in the past, where if you're not familiar with the Scripture— a verse will sure sound like what someone is saying it is. So it's like, don't you know Jesus said he had other sheep? Well, who could he possibly be talking about? And then they say, well, these other sheep are everyone in the Americas. Well, the problem is, is again, Jesus is a first century Jew. Right. And his mission was first and foremost to the people of Israel, the people that God had made a covenant with. But the secret, the behind-the-pocket secret, Ephesians calls the mystery concealed, like for all ages, that God has finally made known, is that God wanted his family to be not only just Jewish, but also Gentile. And then if you're familiar with the Bible in the New Testament, there's all this talk about neither Jew nor Gentile, right. God saving both Jew and Gentile. So the other sheep aren't people in America. They're anyone who's not Jewish. Right, and you, and that is actually very apparent if you just read the whole New Testament. So yeah. if you just read all of that chapter of John that that's from, the context of who Jesus is talking to and what he's saying, and then the way the rest of the New Testament authors interpret that statement, mm-hmm. There's it's unquestionable. And this is something we're going to see over and over again in this conversation is doctrines that are built on one verse from the New Testament yeah. that's weird, hard to understand, and a foundational Mormon doctrine will be built on it. And then the Book of Mormon, uh, written by Joseph Smith, will fill in all the gaps and provide all the detail. Um, Translated. Yeah, sorry. By Joseph. Translated. And that's part, so that's part of, you know, we don't really have time to fully outline all of this, but that process itself um, is extremely dubious. I mean, the history around him finding the golden plates um, and using seer stones to be able to interpret, you know, this language called Reformed Egyptian, which was supposedly being written on the American continent in the fourth century AD. Um, So tons of historical claims that don't, 
don't necessarily add up. Yeah, they don't have any, I mean, zero, zero archaeological evidence that these civilizations existed in the American continent. But again, to your point, if you just read that Bible verse and you're not familiar with the context, who who is the mystery of the the other sheep? Um, Yeah, you know what? I always did wonder about what happened to all the other people who were on the other side of the world that never got a chance to hear the gospel. So it takes an emotional question that you've had and inserts this mysterious Bible passage, and then voila, here's the answer. Yeah, and the sad thing is that verse is, in a very real sense, about people all over the world, because it, it the other sheep is the rest of the world except for Israel. So there's a sense in which that is what yeah, he means. Yeah, absolutely. But he's not talking specifically about these civilizations yeah, that lived. It's anyone who is not Jewish. Um, Silas is asking, so Jesus is unique in his resurrection, um, I think he means isn't. Oh, yeah, isn't unique in his resurrection. Moroni also resurrected. Um, in a sense, yes. It's it's very different, though. Um, the When they say resurrected being, they mean he, at this point, is a spirit being, not in his final resurrection form, I believe. He basically becomes an angel. And so that's what you'll he's hear. An- angel Moroni. He's called the angel Moroni all the time. So, that oh, again, to, your, to one of the things you said in the beginning was that the word resurrection may be used, just like the word son of God may be used. Right but they are using it in a different sense that, that we would. Because we would say Jesus resurrected as the first fruits of everyone else who will be resurrected physically right. on the last day. At the end. At the end. And Moroni, so every in Mormon theology, every person resurrects. Um, every person lives eternally and will eventually be resurrected. But because of something called eternal progression, a person who lives a particularly devout life can kind of advance beyond normal people. And Moroni is one of these heroes who did that. Um, And right off the bat, if you're really familiar with your New Testament, the one verse that should just be jumping out at you is in Galatians 1.8, where Paul says, even if an angel from heaven appears and preaches a gospel contradictory to the one you receive from us, that ain't, I mean, he doesn't say that ain't the real thing, but that's my paraphrase. That's a good loose modern day translation. That's the message version, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sam's message. So, so you know, right off the bat, you should be going, the whole story of this, imagine it's true and there's no kind of con artistry going on. Let's say this all really happened the way Joseph Smith said it did. An angel from heaven appeared and said, the rest of the Christians are off. Here's the true mm-hmm. Christianity. Paul warned us 2,000 years ago that if that happens, you, don't you trust have to, it. You have to compare it, even if, yeah, exactly we're blinded by a, a giant light and as some spiritual being appears and says, this is the true gospel. We should say, does this true gospel, does this supposedly true gospel mass up, match up with what I have in the new Testament? And if it doesn't, then tough, it doesn't matter if an angel. Yeah. It's kind of creepy how it's, it's like almost on the nose though. Yeah. Like if an angel comes and tells you something different. Totally. And I've thought about that a lot, that, man, if the, if there was a real interaction that Joseph Smith had in the 19th century with a spiritual being, what an incredibly successful deception that has turned out to be, you know, millions and millions of converts later. And so the Book of Mormon, without getting into a ton of details, it's a mixture of material from the King James Bible and a bunch of new material, um, and a bunch of stories from characters who lived on the American continent during the times of the Old and New Testament. So, um the, the important thing for you to know about theologically, though, is that it is equally authoritative to the Bible. And um, I would say just they will. This isn't official doctrine, but on a practical level, it ends up becoming kind of m- more prominent than the Bible often, even though they're equal in authority. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I want to be fair. And I, like you said, I don't think that they would articulate it that way. Just like for us, we wouldn't say the New Testament is more the word of God than the Old Testament, but we tend to read the Old Testament through a New Testament lens. And so there's a tendency by which latter revelation often will interpret earlier revelation or give it more kind of contextual color, if you will. It'll fill in the blank. So, um, but I, yeah, I'm not sure how they would actually want that to be articulated. And there are more books also that came from Joseph Smith. So there's the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Um, And all of them are authoritative. And in addition to that, we can watch another video on this if you want to pull it up, Kevin. Um, This is incredibly central to Mormon theology, and it's often misunderstood. Um, But Mormons believe that revelation is an ongoing process now, whereas Christians believe in it. Well, we can talk about that after we watch. 
What about today? Does God have prophets on the earth now? God loves us today just as much as he loved his children in ancient times. And so, just like those who lived thousands of years ago, we are given heavenly guidance through scripture, the Holy Spirit, and yes, prophets, modern prophets. God has a prophet on the earth today who speaks for him. And just like prophets found in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, he is a witness of Jesus Christ. He testifies of the Savior's divinity and teaches his gospel. He receives direction from God for our benefit and at times calls his children to repentance. He interprets the word of God and sometimes even foretells events to warn us or to prepare us. Prophets in our time have given inspired counsel from God on vital principles. So th this, uh, like all of them, it goes on, but just for the sake of time, the main point here is that um, there are ongoing, there's an ongoing prophetic office that has since Joseph Smith been held by one person and it is ongoing new revelation from God. The expectation in Mormonism is that God is going to continue to reveal new things um, in the modern world. And so since Joseph Smith, I think we're on the current prophet is prophet number 16 or 17 or something like that. Um, but there's famous ones like Brigham Young. They also sort of function as, I think they actually call them the president of the, the Church of Latter-day Saints. So there's kind of like a, um, you know, an office to it as well. Um, but the expectation is that God is going to continue to speak. New revelation is going to come. And so you shouldn't be surprised when there are adjustments to the theology or doctrinal changes. Mm -hmm. And I always think that's important to point out because one of the kind of straw man arguments against Mormonism that's made frequently by Christians is, well, your prophets contradict each other. So how can you believe in a prophet if this one says something and then 50 years later, the story changes? And there are ways that you can critique that, but it's not a, a, a valid theological critique because it's actually built into their theology that revelation can change and that prophets in the modern world can be incorrect about stuff. Yeah. And there's in sort of mainstream Christianity, there are traditions that go anywhere from the Bible's closed, canon's closed, get God's not talking at all. Just read your Bible. And then on the other end, no, God's still talking through his Holy spirit through people. And they would say that because the, the vessel isn't perfect, the human, right that sometimes the prophetic message can be wrong, but it doesn't mean prophecy isn't happening. Right. So even within the normal spectrum of Christianity, you have a wide, I mean, pretty wide degree of, of thought on ongoing revelation. Yeah, we saw that earlier in the series with some of the, the more kind of word of faith, yeah. really spiritual, heavy sects of Christianity, that there's yeah, an expectation you, of dreams. Those, and, those dudes kind of, will, you, could, you could be watching give a sermon, they'll say, okay, hold on. I think I'm getting something. I think the Lord's talking to me. Yeah. And one person might say, I think the Lord's talking to me. And that might mean I'm just feeling convicted about something. That's what they mean. The Lord right. talked that it's just conviction. Uh, but someone else might act. They might claim, no, God, like literally just spoke to my brain right now. And there's that, those degrees of interpretation. Yeah. And it's very, very dramatic in Mormonism. Like the expectation is that you can get big, giant downloads of new doctrinal information that's going to come in in the modern world. Yeah. And so we've seen some of that in history where gigantic positions that the church was really strong on um, were changed completely. Mm -hmm. um, things from uh, official stances on polygamy mm -hmm. and uh, allowing non-white priests and, and things like that, that, that change really dramatically. And again, I just, it, it's not that those things aren't worthy of critique in some sense, but that to say that that means that their theology is inconsistent isn't mm -hmm. true because that's, the expectation is that revelations they're gonna... being internally consistent right. when they say our prophets get it wrong sometimes. Yeah. So then you internal consistency, even though I would say like, you can't, you can't speak thus saith the Lord and just get away with. Absolutely. Stuff. Yeah. And, and this is a, a major difference, even with that spectrum of, of thought on prophecy within historic biblical Christianity, 99.9% .9 of Bible believing Christians are going to say, you better double check that your prophecy comports with the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's that safe Bible that is special and unique authoritative. It's its own thing. It's not on par with ongoing revelation, right. no matter where you are in that spectrum. Yeah. So that's a huge difference. Now moving into, okay. Now this is interesting. We could, we can address what more, more gone. Let me try to catch up with the conversation real quick. Um, so there's some conversation about lowercase g gods by which the people in the chat who are saying that I think mean lesser spiritual beings that are not God, 
but are considered, you know, these would be, uh, angels, demons, etc. Um, and then the question that Morgan asked at the end is, sorry, lesser gods, as in the entities Mormons can become elevated beast being a resurrected human. We're going to sideline that because that's going to come up later. Yeah. yeah. So, um, great question, but we'll get to, we'll get to that a little bit later. Now, jumping into some of the really dramatic differences between Christianity and Mormonism, we're going to move into talking about theology proper, which means theology about God. Um, and Jesus, because one of the biggest distinctives in Mormon theology is their view of the Trinity. So let's pull up this video, Kev. All right. Just a bit later. Together, the three members of the Godhead are one in many ways, but don't confuse the Godhead with concepts of the Trinity found in other Christian faiths, as there are key differences, which for Latter-day Saints are very important to understand. It can also be confusing at times when, in Scripture, they are sometimes referred to as one God, or when it says, the Father and Son are one. For Latter-day Saints, this means they are all united in their thoughts, desires, knowledge, power, and purpose, to love, guide, and save all of God's children. One important concept is the understanding that each member of the Godhead is a different individual being. For example, Joseph Smith, a man whom God selected as his prophet to restore the Church of Jesus Christ to the earth, revealed that God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ are separate individual beings. Joseph saw God the Father and Jesus in a personal visit from them in 1820. In Joseph's words, When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. So really huge differences here. Let's, we'll look at one more video. Um, this is from a YouTube channel called Saints Unscripted. These are um, Mormon young adults who talk about Mormon, who have almost like a talk show talking about um, Mormon theology. And they talk about the Trinity as well. And there'll be some helpful stuff here. What do Mormons believe then? Yes, so we have three beings. You have the Son who, and the Father and the Spirit. And the Son is not equal to the father mm -hmm. he is subordinate but he is still you know a god and you have the holy spirit and they work together and they're the godhead so at face value you go those are the same things as the three beings you're just calling them different things mm -hmm. however we believe that god um actually had an only begotten son jesus yes. christ yeah. and that they are separate beings mm -hmm. and that like jesus christ we came to earth as well and mm -hmm. we can live a mortal life just yes. like Jesus Christ. And the Holy Ghost is going to confirm to us, you know, that these teachings about God and Jesus Christ are true. Mm -hmm. So one more thing, they, they sum up their beliefs about this really well at the end of the video. Um, I believe in modern revelation. Yeah, just to close here, the, the, and, and we, we don't try to disparage anyone's faith mm -hmm. because we believe that Christians of other denominations are still good people. Yeah. But simply put, the Trinity is not an original Christian teaching. It just isn't. And we don't affirm it. We affirm the Godhead, the three separate gods, because that's how it's written in the New Testament, and that's what the Lord revealed even in the restoration of the church. You know what? Okay, so this is a gigantic divergence from Christian this theology. Is where, I mean, technically where it all, all begins. With every, it's, it's, it's always a misconstruction of the nature of God that leads to fractured theology. It always begins with who do you think God is. Right. And so central to Christian theology from very, very early church is this idea that there is one God revealed in three persons, but it's, it's crucial to Christian theology that this is one being. Um, and obviously we can't do an entire show about the Trinity at this point. That's a, its own incredibly deep rabbit hole, yeah. but very clear in Mormon teaching, these are three different beings. You heard yeah. several ways of it being articulated there. They talked about three different beings. At the end, they said three different gods, three different personages. Um, but the whole idea is you have God, the father, who's the ultimate being. Mm -hmm. And then you have the son, Jesus, who is a human being who is underneath him, who is subordinate to him, to him. Um, which is, again, you know, if you were, if you've been with theology Thursday from the beginning, we talked about Christological heresies yeah. way early on in the pandemic. And that is one, I mean, that's, that's a heretical teaching from the early church. Um, and then the idea is that this Jesus attained to Godhood in a, in a pattern that any human being could follow. And this is what Morgana was getting at earlier with her question. Um, so what, like when you watch that, what jumps out at you as the kind of key differences? Uh, pr props to them in that they did a good job at basically quickly and succinctly articulating what the Mormon 
church actually holds to, that there's three distinct beings. The problem is, is central to the entirety of the Bible is monotheism, the belief that there is one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear Israel, the Lord, that God is one. That is like these like foundational verse. Yeah, or you think of Paul saying, for us there is one God and Father and one Lord, Jesus Christ, yeah. right? Yeah, and so um, the, the, the thing is, is that the Bible is again and again and again and again saying there's only one God. But it, it, it comes out in the Old Testament, but it really comes out in the New Testament. There's only one God, but then all of a sudden you have the Father being addressed as God and receiving worship. You have Jesus being addressed in that same manner. And then even sometimes you have the Spirit, where it talks about the Spirit who is the Lord. Right. Um, and it talks about being able to grieve the Holy Spirit. So what the first followers of Jesus did is... Um, because they're going to say stuff like this, and this is what people always do. It's like, well, you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Right. Or The Trinity is not a biblical word, yeah, the biblical tr- concept. And all of the theological terms we're using aren't biblical words, but what they what they had to do was say, the Scripture is affirming that there's one God, but then we have Father, Son, and Spirit. So how can we be faithful to the text and articulate what we're reading? Um, and there was very, very, very early on, in church history, Jesus exalted and worshiped as God. Yeah, including in the New Testament, you know, Thomas calling Jesus my God, mm-hmm. um, right there in the Gospels. And then, of course, you know, this is funny because there's a, we could pull up a bunch of proof texts that just show mm-hmm. Jesus being called God in the New Testament. But in addition to the kind of obvious stuff, there's this beautiful literary pattern. Um, and, and this comes out in our preaching quite a bit that the New Testament authors are also always pulling in Old Testament things about Yahweh and applying them to Jesus in really yeah. beautiful, sometimes very subtle ways. But the claim being made, you know, when, for example, there's a really uh, obvious and, and powerful one when Jesus in John's gospel says, before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. It's clearly a claim that he is Yahweh. Yeah, this, the audience knows it. because they, the they pick up stones to kill, kill him. him. Now, for when I was saying the early church and the New Testament writers equated Jesus with God in defense to them, to the Church of Latter-day Saints, they would say, well, because Jesus is God. Right. He is God. He's a God. Yeah. He's not the, there, there isn't a the God. He's a God. Um, so that's, and so can you. Yeah. Which we'll get to in a minute. And, and you know, part of, part of the deal there, too, that makes it complicated is you have this. Um, in fact, I've actually heard. Mormon theologians use this term that they're less of a monotheist religion and more of a monolatrous religion. That's a fancy word. Monolatry is like idolatry, but with the word mono meaning one at the beginning. So the idea of monolatry is there's a lot of gods, but you worship just one. Um, And again, I don't want to put words in the mouth of Mormonism as a whole, um, but the way they talk about a, a universe populated with gods but we worship just one God, the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds a lot more like monolatry, and I have actually seen that said by Mormon yeah. theologians before. And so, um, and again, as we'll see in a second, built into the theological system is the idea that any human being can progress into godhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, m- maybe we should keep cruising and look at that. If you guys, as, as always, if you have questions, feel free to throw them in as we go. Also, Kevin is still one like away from keeping his job. I see we got 14, so anybody who joined... Since we announced that, um, you don't you got, got to though. No pressure. You t- <laughs> you have twenty six minutes to help Kevin. So before we move on again, yeah. it's important to note that you're always going to feel the tension. The Bible talks about one God and then Father, Son, and Spirit, and because of that tension, people will typically drift from the, the scriptures in that they will emphasize the plurality. Mm. In that, well, it's just because there's three gods. Right. Or what they'll do is they'll collapse the Father, Son, and Spirit into a oneness where there's actually no longer three persons. Yeah. And that's something called oneness or modalism where there, um, there's only one God and sometimes he's acting as the Father. But then, oh no, then when he came to earth, now he's acting as the Son. And when he talks to you in the believer's life, he's, he's the Spirit. So it's like picture wearing different hats. 
sometimes God wears the father hat. Sometimes he wears the son hat. Sometimes he wears the spirit hat. Or think of a father who sometimes he relates to his dad as a son. Right. Sometimes he relates to his son as a father. Or like the, the well-intended but inadequate metaphor of the Trinity being like water, that sometimes it's water, sometimes it's yeah. ice, sometimes it's mist. Yeah. So there's always going to be tension. What Mormonism does is it leans hard into the plurality so much they say there's just three beings, there's three gods. What modalist will do is they'll collapse those three beings into a oneness so there's no longer any type of distinction. And what historic Christianity has done, this is, by the way, one of the most miraculous things. It really is mind-blowing. The Trinity is the hardest thing to understand in scriptures in my mind by far. But yet all the major historic branches of Christianity, even though they may fight about a lot of all stuff, the details they're, they're, of it, yeah. they're all, they all affirm the Trinity. So Protestants, Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox church, Coptic church. I mean, they may articulate it with nuanced difference, but historic Christianity and all of its major branches typically affirms the Trinity. You have deviations that are much smaller yeah. and they'll lean into the plurality or the oneness and they try to get rid of the tension. And right. this is key you try to get rid of the tension because the tension is too difficult to deal with. But the scripture leaves it there and says, you, this, this is the truth, yeah. now deal with it. Yeah, and again, it's not, it's, it's not fair or reasonable to say, well, there, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. The Trinity is a theological construction to explain what is in the Bible, which yeah. is an affirmation that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God, and yet there is one God. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's a gigantic divergence, not to mention the fact, I mean, we just blew right past the fact that Joseph Smith saw God the Father as a being with a physical body, mm -hmm. which scripture explicitly denies as being God's nature. Um, and so I, again, I think we'll get into that. Let's, let's keep cruising here because I want to make sure we get to some of these other things. We're moving into more like the soteriological aspect. So what Mormons believe about salvation and how we're saved, because this is a, another set of gigantic differences. New Testament, the Apostle Paul taught this concept to the Corinthians as he expounded on the resurrection of the body after death. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Latter-day Saints agree with Paul that during the resurrection, each of God's children will be raised to one of three levels or degrees of glory comparable to that of the sun, moon and stars. Latter-day Saints learn more about these degrees of glory through revelations that were given by God to the prophet Joseph Smith, the first prophet and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Latter-day Saints believe each of these kingdoms is a degree of glory and can be considered a type of heaven. Joseph Smith taught that the highest degree of glory or highest degree of heaven is called the celestial kingdom and is where God and his son Jesus Christ dwell. He also taught about the terrestrial and celestial kingdoms. Even the lowest kingdom, the celestial kingdom, is a degree of glory, comparable to the glory of the distant stars. While this degree is reserved for those who lived lives of ill intent and hatred for the things of God, they nevertheless receive a measure of glory from a loving and just heavenly Father. The terrestrial kingdom, with its brighter glory comparable to that of the moon, is the reward for those who lead good and honorable lives, but who never fully embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. The highest degree of glory, the celestial kingdom, comparable to the brilliance of the sun, offers a reward of life forever in the presence of God and his son, Jesus Christ. There, they may inherit all that the Father has. We are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Let's back up a little. After death, what happens to the body? So this video is interesting. We could keep watching it, but that's enough to talk about right there. Um, this is a really central and important doctrine in Mormonism that... After you die, there are three levels of heaven, basically, is one way of talking about it. Um, and there's the, the celestial, which is the highest. That's yeah. where you're actually with God. That's what eternal life is. When you hear a Mormon say eternal life, they're talking about that. Um, then there's the kind of middle terrestrial. And then the third one, the lowest, where is you're probably where I'm probably... <laughs> if they're right... No, I think, you, I, I think I'd make terrestrial. I, you just hope you get out of the outer darkness. <laughs> And then the third is telestial, which I should say, and I'm trying to say this without any snark, but telestial is just, that's not a word. It's just a combination of the words celestial and terrestrial. Um, and basically, um, to oversimplify and say it really quickly, Mormon theology is a, a combination of universalist soteriology mm -hmm. and works righteousness soteriology. Because according to Mormonism, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, everyone will be resurrected. 
So everyone ends up in one of these three camps. Um, where the works come in is you trying to earn in your earthly life your place in the highest kingdom, eternal life with God in the celestial yeah. kingdom. Now, there is a hell in Mormonism called the outer darkness that's um, reserved for the absolute worst of the worst, people who reject God, reject Jesus, and do horrible things. Um, Raider fans, Dodger Raider fans, fans, Dodger fans. I was going to say Kevin, but that felt a little bit too dark Kevin, of a joke to me. <laughs> the outer darkness, man. Hey, Kevin's not in the outer darkness because we got 16 likes. He's out of the so darkness, Kevin, man. There's also, and this is interesting, there's also a, they don't call it this, but there's a, an, a purgatory type environment as well um, between life and death where um, deceased spiritual beings who have not yet been resurrected um, have an opportunity to choose Jesus. Um, and we'll talk about that when we talk about baptism. But... So all of that was based on one verse from the New Testament where Paul talks about degrees mm -hmm. of glory. What's, is that what that verse is talking about? No. 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 <laughs> Again, it's like the, um, the, the, I have other sheep. If you don't know the context, you're going, oh, man, who are these other sheep? We got to find who these other sheep. Oh, it's yeah. the people in America. Degrees of glory, and, one like a star, and, one like a moon, one going, like the sun. Oh, man, and all Jesus is saying is that there's, there's different types of substance type of thing. Right. Um, and Paul in that in that just really quickly, the when he's talking about, hey, there's different types of, of celestial bodies. There's the there's the sun and the moon. And he's It's in the middle of talking about the difference between your earthly body and your resurrected yes. body. And just all he's saying is they will be different in a kind of fundamental way. That's yeah. the whole point of that verse, is he's giving an example of things that are fundamentally different. Yeah, just, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about a spiritual body. And he's saying the spiritual body is different than what your, your current right. body is. Um, and that's the same type of concept, but because of this one verse that you may not have context and you can invent a whole theology of three, three levels of heaven. And then of course this, this outer darkness. Now the good news is, um, if I'm wrong and they're right, I'm still getting in. You're going terrestrial almost certainly. I'm getting in the bottom like, i mean the worst is still a, a glory like the stars yeah and that's and that's by the way in mormon theology where like a murderer or a you know ho any horrible person you can imagine who lived a terrible life yeah it's very um, generous that's why i use the term universalism yeah it's like the outer darkness is reserved for like, the worst really, of the really, worst really, really, man you a raider fan you read chihuahuas <laughs> for a living um the outer like, darkness um, is reserved for chihuahua breeders <laughs> who like uh <laughs> What's the van that people drew? who drink Keurig coffee, Kevin, oh, man. end up in the outer dark? I think. I think <laughs> we should stop talking now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it, but it's 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 an, yet another example, and we'll see this again with baptism for the dead, where one obscure verse is taken and an entire foundational doctrine yeah. is built, and then the Book of Mormon comes in and kind of fills in all the gaps and gives all of those details. So it's interesting because it's a universalist religion, meaning everyone gets into heaven because of Jesus's sacrifice, but it's also, it's why there's such a gigantic missionary emphasis and so much um, kind of an emphasis on purity and living a morally upright life. It's because all of it is rooted around you're trying to get into the celestial kingdom because yeah. it's not like you're going to go to hell if you don't do good works, but you're not going to get the good life yeah, um, and the opportunity to advance to, into Godhood, which only is available in the celestial yeah, kingdom. Yeah, and at the core of that is a claim that you have to ascend to the location of God rather than God descended to your location to bring you into his home and hey, his family. that'll preach. That's pretty good. Um, okay, so here's the, the fundamental thing to understand is that there's, and these are two terms that get used interchangeably to some extent, but in Mormonism there is salvation and there is exaltation. Salvation is for everybody. Exaltation is that getting yourself into the celestial kingdom. So here's a couple of examples of that being explained more clearly. This is Russell Nelson, who is the current prophet of the Church of Latter-day Saints. So you, there is not a more authoritative figure than this. His atonement made resurrection a reality and eternal life a possibility for all who would ever live. Resurrection or immortality comes to every man and every woman as an unconditional gift. Eternal life or celestial glory or exaltation is a conditional gift. Conditions of this gift have been established by the Lord who said, if you keep my commandments and endure to the end, 
You shall have eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. Those qualifying conditions include faith in the Lord, repentance, baptism, receiving the Holy Ghost, and remaining faithful to the ordinances and covenants of the temple. No. Now he goes on, and it's interesting um, to, to talk about marriage, which we'll talk about in a minute, and how that is involved with this, because that's very significant as well. Um, let's watch one more, actually, Kevin, because this is another articulation of the same idea that's, um, that's from that same channel, Saints Unscripted, and, and this guy does a really good job of explaining. Salvation in its most basic form. That said, exaltation is a little different than salvation, though Latter-day Saints, including our prophets, will often use the two words interchangeably. That gets confusing for people outside of our religion, so I'm separating the two. Before we move on to exaltation, let's review Latter-day Saint teachings about heaven, because that's important. To most Christian denominations, there's heaven or hell, and that's it. It's eternal happiness or eternal punishment. Kevin, when do we get to effects us, like that? We believe in at yeah, least man. three different levels or degrees of heaven. Those in the lower levels are more separated from God than those in the highest level. But because of Christ's grace, essentially everyone who ever lives will eventually end up somewhere in those three kingdoms of heaven. But exaltation is more than just living somewhere in heaven. It's living in the highest degree of heaven and having the opportunity to literally become like God. Yeah, I just said that. Not replacing God, but learning how to do the things he does, know the things he knows, and be the kind of person he wants us to be. Now that is crucial. And that's what was, there's a question asked much earlier about this. Um, and this is a something that I, I believe is called eternal progression within Mormon theology. Uh, and it's another gigantic divergence. So you saw that, that difference between there's the automatic unconditional gift of grace, but then there's also this conditional. Well, if you want to end up in the celestial kingdom, you have to follow the ordinances of the temple. You have to be baptized, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then he talked about how if you end up in the celestial kingdom, that gives you the opportunity to become a God. Yeah. Um, and within Mormon teaching, there's this belief that God, part of the reason why God the Father has a body is because he was originally a man who ascended into Godhood in a way that any of us could as well. And so the idea is in a perfect if you do everything right, you can end up ascending to godhood and creating your own planet and your own humans and kind of start your own world, basically. Yeah, it's like an RPG. Mm. Like an RPG, you start off level one and, you know, you run you have into a stick. like a big fly and you got a stick and the fly just whoop, whoops you because yeah. it stings for five HP. <laughs> but, you know, you play that game for a month and then by the end of it, you're fighting the thunder god. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that, <laughs> except if you could become, in the game, you could become a video game designer who creates your own yeah, RPG. You jump, you jump out, of the, <laughs> out of the whole thing. Look at um, Kevin's helping, helping people understand what an RPG is. Kevin, you know you had to Wikipedia that real quick too, man. <laughs> Kevin's like a rocket-propelled grenade. Rocket -propelled what grenade are they talking about? So, two things on that. One, um, when, the, when the younger guy was talking, he was just like, because of the gift, everyone's going to be resurrected, and you'll go into one of these th three places. That message resonates in our culture. Absolutely. Like, it's everyone very just wants to believe, hey, we're all, we're all pretty much good people, so, you know, we all go to a better place when we die. And that's exactly what it's firming. It's just there's three places, and they're better than each other. But, hey, no, ma hey, no matter what, unless you're, like, unless you're like Hitler, man, we're all going to a, a, a better place. And that that is almost like... American cultural folk religion, if right. you will, just that we're all pretty much good people. When we die, we're going to go to a better place. Yeah. Um, but really difficult to get out of the New Testament because Jesus is warning like nonstop, man, don't fear this because God can throw your body into hellfire right. type of thing. Yeah. And there's this, this gigantic missionary zeal in the New Testament that people would be saved mm -hmm. from eternal destruction. Kevin's cracking up at something. Kevin <laughs> Morgan says, Kevin is chaotic benevolent, which I believe is Dungeons and Dragons language, because um, you can be chaotic good. Dang. I, I, I'm I'm I never played D and D um, because I was a homeschooled home Christian growing up. Play that stuff, man. <laughs> but I but I know Could enough. Watch Darkwing Duck. Darkwing Duck. Trolls were out of line. All of that. Trolls. I was too. I was you know. Trolls weren't my time. They're a little creepy anyway. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to. We can't go down the rabbit hole of things I wasn't allowed to watch. Like I said, I was a homeschooled Christian. That would take our entire time. Um, so, you know. By the way, 
I'm all about that homeschool life as a father. So that's not a knock on the homeschool. Absolutely. Community. You make fun of them when they're your peers, yes. but then you turn around and educate your own children yes. that way. That's, that's how I'm you know, school for life, man. That's how you know you've done something right. And so the here, let's actually, um, just so it's not me saying that there's a really short clip of, um, the saints unscripted guys and gals talking about the idea of creating your own planet. Question. We get planets. You get your own planet. Yeah. Cause if so, I, there's a Google doc. It's being I silly. Get Jupiter, and I, I want Jupiter. <laughs> I, like, I, do you get a planet? Um, <laughs> I think, well, I mean, it's not that you we get, like, a get a planet, but like we're saying, like, we believe we can become gods and we can God, create. We believe that God created the universe. Yes. Logically, if we believe that we're going to be like God in every shape, way, and form. We will be able to create. Create. We have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't want to touch the idea of, you know. So you get the idea there. They're saying it's not as silly as saying, like, everyone who dies gets a planet. The idea yeah. is that you, and they're dispelling, like, a mischaracterization of it. The point isn't. Mormons yeah. believe you go to heaven and get your own planet. The point is you could, through eternal progression, become like God in the celestial kingdom. And because you're like God, you could make a planet. Um, parts of Mormon teaching teach that uh, marriage, and I think the prophet actually goes on to say it in the video that I stopped, that in order to really do that, to populate a new world with spirit children, you're going to need um, to be eternally married to a wife. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in, this is kind of a sidebar, but in Mormonism, marriages are eternal. They're not just till death do us part. You're sealed in the temple, which I've been in, by the way. I got to go in the Mormon temple in Oakland because outsiders are allowed to go in whenever they uh, retrofit it or do some major renovations on it. So um, I saw the sealing rooms where married couples are sealed permanently. And part of the teaching of the Mormon church is you as a married couple enter the celestial kingdom and you and your wife, if you ascend to godhood, can create a planet and populate it with spiritual children. Now, what's easy for for Christians to do is just kind of like make fun of or look down upon right. the weird stuff. Oh, you you know, Mormons think you can become a god and make your own planet. That's that's the that's not the concern because if you're a Christian, the world in this culture thinks you believe weird stuff. It's right. not finding what sounds the most weird. It's sounding what deviates from scripture. So the problem isn't creating a planet. The problem is that God himself was at one time in a similar state to you. Right. And because of eternal progression, obtained a status and position that you too can. And, well, God had created the world, then you can create a That's not the weird part. The weird part is the misconstruction right. of the nature of God and then taking that thing that's been kind of developed in a poor way, then transferring that over to you saying you could... You can do the same. Thing. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I talked to you about this earlier, Isaac, but the, w when I was watching these videos from saints unscripted and one of the things that, cause they're saying these things that to me are bizarre as a Christian, but the things that, that kept occurring to me were like, man, um, the average atheist in our culture would watch a video of me explaining Christian theology and think that I'm every bit as strange as I feel like this talk yes. about having your own planet is. So there's a, there's, Again, you go, we believe things that are foolishness to the world. If you're a Christian, that's part of the deal. Um, and, the, you know, you believe it because it's true, but not because it's not weird. Mm -hmm. And so, like Isaac's saying, the issue isn't, can you believe Mormons think there's a planet? The much more dangerous idea is that Mormons believe God was once a man mm -hmm. and was created by other gods and ascended to godhood. That's a much more dangerous thing, thinking because fundamental to historic Christianity is the idea that God is the only uncaused cause. Mm -hmm. He is the only eternally non-contingent, nothing caused yeah. him to come into existence. And we don't have time to get into it, but dude, if you mess with that, the whole house of cards comes down. Yeah. Um, and again, if you plug for myself here, if you want to go back into the archives to the theology proper episodes of Theology Thursday, I talk a little bit about why that's so important. Um, one last thing because we're rounding the, the corner here of, of getting close to finishing. Baptism for the dead. This is another really important doctrine in terms of kind of like a practical thing for Mormons. But here's the problem. What about those millions of people who died without baptism? Or were baptized, but without proper authority? How is that problem solved? God has a way to provide an opportunity for all his children to accept the gospel. This is where Mormon temples and the practice of baptism for the dead come in. Mormons don't baptize dead people. They use proxies, living stand-ins, to represent those who have passed away without proper baptism. Let's explain proxy a bit. Your math teacher couldn't make it to class because she was out sick, so she arranged for a substitute, a proxy, to fill in for her. 
And you'll remember from the Bible that Jesus suffered for our sins. He also acted as a proxy. In the same way, male and female Mormons in good standing, age 12 and up, act as proxies. They stand in for their deceased relatives and are baptized in their behalf. A baptism for the living can take place in a river, a pond, or really any place large enough for a person to become completely immersed, even in the font found in many Mormon chapels. But a baptism for the dead can only take place in Mormon temples, which they consider sacred. Like baptisms for the living, these proxy baptisms are also by immersion and with priesthood authority, and each one is witnessed and recorded. And that's why Mormons are so interested in finding their ancestors, so they can do a proxy baptism for them. You may be asking... That, uh, that image there of, uh, if you can pull it back up for just a second, Kevin, that's what they're, um, in the temples, what their baptismal fonts look like. They're really, really cool. Um, it was definitely the coolest looking thing um, architecturally or whatever is the big, it's modeled after Solomon's temple that there's the 12 oxen all facing out. Um, but yeah, so this is, if you talk about kind of practical things that a devout Mormon is very concerned with, this is a huge one. Um, the idea of baptism for the dead. And it's again, based on one obscure passage from one of Paul's letters where he, by the way, doesn't even endorse the practice of baptism for the dead. All he does is acknowledge that he's it's mentioning happening. that people are doing some sort of baptism for the dead. We don't know exactly what it looked like, how it was practiced, but he mentions it. Yeah. And the practice of historic Christianity has been with a weird verse like that, that you have no idea what to do with. You go, okay, well, we can talk about it. We can look at it, but we're not going to build yeah. a foundational so that's, doctrine that's, that's on it. That's the third one that that's, it's happened today. And right. again, to be fair, I'm sure people would say, no, we believe that more. We have more reasons than just that Bible verse to hold to that position. Right. But a whole lot is being built upon one single verse. So the first one was the sheep one. The second was the different types of glories. And now the reference to a baptism of the dead. Yeah. And whole theologies are built. Yeah. Out and of with those. baptism for the dead, man, I didn't realize this until I went and toured the Mormon temple last year, but um, it's hugely significant. I mean, it's, they talked about it a lot. Um, and, and devout Mormons take this very seriously that you research your family tree yeah. so that you can find out who in my history might not have had an opportunity. And that's where that kind of purgatory type environment comes into play that these undecided spirits who are in prison, this is another thing that's built on a, an obscure passage from Peter have an opportunity to have the gospel preached to them. And, and the way how, that... How, how emotionally... Sat oh, like, man, it's powerful. So think about you how much... You, true. I, as a Christian, I want my loved ones to know the gospel. I want them to know Jesus. I have that desire now. But how much more is like, well, even ones that have died in yeah. the past, you can still save them yeah. by doing X, Y, Z. I mean, the pool of that is Oh, it's huge. Immense. And it's not... And you can... And they know that because, again, when I took the tour, all of their explainer videos and stuff that they spent time working on, it was... There was a ton of information about baptism for the dead. And... Um, from what I understand, you can you can sign up to proxy, be proxy baptized for you know twenty five ancestors in one session because it's witnessed by official priests and everything, and they'll say the name of the ancestor and dunk you, and say the name of the next ancestor and dunk you. And the idea, again, to be fair to them, it's not that those people automatically are saved; it's that those spirits in a purgatory type environment will then have an opportunity to accept or reject yes. your baptism on their behalf. Um, and so, this is again crazy divergent from historic Christianity's soteriology. Yeah. I mean, not only do we not believe in the Protestant church that baptism is salvific in that direct sense that you have to be saved, have to be baptized to be saved. Um, but there is absolutely no teaching in historic Christianity about being baptized on someone else's behalf. It just doesn't, you don't see it no. And so we debate within Christianity about, you know, babies, adults, sprinkling, dunking, mm -hmm. but this is wildly divergent and unique yeah. and you don't see it um, anywhere else in regular Christianity. So we could, we're, we're wrapping up. We could have talked about stuff from the history of um, Mormonism that's troubling about their history with race relations and mm -hmm. polygamy and things like that. But the truth is we really wanted this to be about theology first and foremost. Um, and so I encourage you, this is just a, um, uh, Morgan wants to know, how did they go about proving the deceased have accepted the offered baptism? They don't. That's not something they concern themselves with, as I understand it. It's just they they can rest assured that they have offered that deceased soul the opportunity to receive baptism via them as a proxy. So there's no way, um, yeah, Emily's, Emily's right. There's no way for them to know for sure that it was accepted. But the point is you gave them that opportunity. Um, and it's an optimistic religion in that sense. I mean, the idea is if you're in it's very optimistic, you're in purgatory in chains waiting and somebody says, Hey, you can be saved now because your great, great grandson you go to one of these three places that are all pretty good. Unless you were really, really, really bad. Um, 
and then there's all these ways to have second chances and you too can become like, so it's very, very positive. Yeah. And it resonates with the kind of uh, American cultural religion very, very well. Yeah. Um, the problem again is just the new, the new Testament. It, it doesn't, it sounds so radically different. And again, and maybe we can end on this is that the key with all of these things is tell me what you mean by Jesus. Right. Tell me what you mean by God. And we may be using the same words, but when you actually define them, we're just like, that's, that's not anything like what I'm, when I say Jesus, I am talking about the eternal son of God right. who never came to be, who is eternal, who created all things were created through him by him from like, he's, it doesn't get any better than that type yeah. of thing. And that is a different being than in every sense. That is a different being than the son of God yeah. as described in Mormonism. And we'll see that same thing with a bunch of terminology next week when we talk about Jehovah's witnesses. Um, yeah, same, same thing. But my encouragement is, you know, in pop culture and stuff, there's a lot of talk about Mormonism's history and how it came to be. And that's worth knowing about, but don't, don't let things about that that seem crazy to you be the thing. Mormonism, understand their theology and, and make a, a decision based on what the Bible teaches. So, hey, we're going to end super close to on time. Next week, Jehovah's Witness Theology. Thank you all so much for being here, and we'll see you next week.